Hello, my Rebels. Today I want to talk to you about why powerful people break the lockdowns that they themselves enforce on you. And it's a phrase I've used in the last week or so. It's not hypocrisy, I say. It's hierarchy. And I'm going to give you a few examples from the United States, from the United Kingdom, from the world of global warming, and also from obviously lockdownism. I'll take you through it, and I'll tell you the only person in the hierarchy, in fact, right near the top of it, who actually obeys the rules. You might be surprised who it is. So uh, I'd, I'd be very curious what you think about my monologue today. It's a little bit different. So thanks for tuning in. I'd encourage you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus at the video version of this podcast. There's lots of clips I'd like to show you today. Uh, obviously, if you're just listening to this as a podcast, you won't see them. But if you go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You'll get all the visual stuff. In addition to my show, David Menzies, Sheila Gunn-Reed, and Andrew Chapados do weekly shows. And eight bucks a month, it's half the price of Netflix, but it keeps Rebel News strong. All right, without further ado, here's today's podcast. Tonight, just like they're not really scared of global warming, I don't think the powerful people are actually scared of the virus. I have proof. It's January 14th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I was peer pressured into seeing Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, 15 years ago. I probably would have gone to see it just to know what it was and to know how to rebut it. But I didn't like the fact that I went with someone who really liked it and took it at face value. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie. I don't really recommend it. But uh, Al Gore won both an Oscar and a Nobel Prize for it, uh, which I think tells you more about those organizations than it tells you about Al Gore in the movie. But just like me, I, I don't think Al Gore actually took it at face value himself. Even as he was making the movie, part of the movie, he had himself lovingly filmed flying back and forth across the ocean, all around the world really, in first class, no less. I'm not sure what he was thinking artistically to show, I don't know, how tireless he was, to show that he was working while on a plane instead of snoozing or watching an in-flight movie. I don't know what the message was supposed to be, um, but the message I got was either that he really wasn't worried about carbon emissions, I mean, flying first class, uh, or that he just felt whatever rules he wanted to implement on society wouldn't apply to him himself, obviously. Uh, John Kerry, another Democrat, uh, has the same attitude. He's just too important to follow the rules for the little people. On that issue, pollution, I understand that you came here with a private jet. Uh, is that the, an environmental way to travel? If you offset your carbon, it's the only choice for somebody like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. It's the only choice for someone like me. Well, that's obviously not true. You can use the phone or use Zoom 
or you don't even have to fly in a private jet. Um, he's saying there are other things more important to him than reducing carbon emissions, like his own convenience, like his own preferences, like his own politics, like his own self-fulfillment, his own self-image. Now, why can't I say that? Why can't you say that? I love that phrase. It's not hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. He's the boss. You're not. Know your place. People like me, he said. Al Gore is the boss. You're not. There's the ruling class, and you're not in it. Uh, here's Jeff Bezos. Um, he's the master, so he doesn't wear a mask. His servant does. All of these billionaires have their own rocket ship companies. You notice that? Including Elon Musk, who I sort of like. But um, there has literally never been anything in the history of the world as carbon intensive as a rocket ship. You can't power a rocket ship using energy from windmills or solar panels. You can't store that much energy in a battery. You need pure rocket fuel, the most carbon intensive fuel ever to break out of the Earth's gravitational pull. There might be the odd scientific purpose to these vanity space missions, but come on, not really. It's a bunch of middle-aged men uh, who, if they were thousandaires, would be buying a Camaro. If they were billionaires, maybe they'd buy a yacht. But when you're worth, I don't know, $100 billion, you buy rocket ships, I guess? Yeah, it's a bit weird watching a guy worth a quarter trillion dollars have a midlife crisis. It's quite something to behold. But my point is, they all use the language of environmentalism, especially Elon Musk of Tesla. But that's because they know it sells. And they make money off it. And Al Gore got a couple of awards out of it. He couldn't be elected president, but he got his Nobel Prize. These people don't actually follow the rules. They don't take the train. They fly in private jets. I'm sure Elon Musk actually does own a Tesla. I mean, he's the president of the company. Um, it would be weird if he didn't own one, but you don't think he actually drives a Tesla around, do you? I mean, if he moves, it's in an SUV with an entourage of armed bodyguards. Hierarchy more than hypocrisy. I mean, Bill Gates, a close friend of Jeffrey Epstein, the child rapist. Bill Gates kept visiting Epstein long after he was convicted of pedophilia, long after he was a registered sex offender. It's, it's not just hypocrisy. It's hierarchy. Do you know what I mean by that? Bill Gates is so rich and so powerful, he can do whatever he wants, including consorting with a child rapist who ran a child prostitution ring, and why shouldn't Bill Gates feel untouchable? I mean, he's interviewed on TV almost every week. And not a single reporter that I've seen has ever asked him genuine and probing accountability questions about what he did with Epstein. What do you think he did with Epstein? The closest I saw was this. And, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners. Uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. Is there a lesson for you for... Anyone else looking looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, yeah, that's not a persuasive answer. Well, he's dead yet. Yeah, no. Or uh, this question uh, from Anderson Cooper. You know, I had several dinners with him, uh, you know, hoping that uh, what he said about getting billions of philanthropy for global health uh, through uh, contacts that he had might emerge. You know, when it looked like that wasn't a real thing, that relationship ended. But it was a huge mistake 
to spend time with him, to give him the credibility of, you know, being there. There, there were lots of others uh, in that same situation, but I, I made a uh, mistake. Bill Gates' wife literally divorced him because of what he was doing with Epstein. Gee, I wonder what that was. But even this reporter didn't actually press him on what he was doing with Epstein. Those two reporters being timid at best. So yeah, but better than anyone else. So yeah, hierarchy. Based on what? Because they're rich? Because they can pay off people, literally? Pay off people? You know, I, I, I saw this uh, document fairly recently released. It's, it's a contract. Epstein paid off a child that he raped paid her off for half a million dollars U.S. to keep her quiet. Now, the reason we see this document, it was recently released because Prince Andrew said this uh, agreement protected him too. Now, the court disagreed, and now we see the document. By the way, try finding a copy of this $500,000 payoff agreement online. It's a public court record document it was surprisingly hard to find a copy of it, and I think I'm pretty good at Googling. I wonder why. I wonder if it's a coincidence. And the payoffs aren't just to rape victims like Ms. Jufri. Bill Gates has given nearly a third of a billion dollars to journalists in grants. That shuts up a lot of people who might ask him about Jeffrey Epstein, doesn't it? Like I say, hierarchy. And what are you going to do? You're going to, I don't know, take one of these people to court or something? Well, he's dead, so. Do you know who really does have hierarchy? I mean, true, deep-rooted hierarchy in, in our country. A living person who is not morally superior to you, but who is actually legally and politically and constitutionally superior to you. Well, take a look at your money, take a look at your stamps, take a look at your passport. If you need some clues, uh, the answer is Queen Elizabeth, Prince Andrew's mom. Now, we forget about it, but every lawsuit in uh, criminal court is called the Queen versus so-and-so. Have you ever heard that? R v so-and-so. The R stands for Regina, uh, which is uh, queen in Latin. We call it Regina when it's a city in Saskatchewan. Crown prosecutors. Who's, whose crown do you think they're talking about? Uh, queen Elizabeth. Uh, the phrase royalty is in a royalty payment. If you, if you mine gold or drill for oil, you pay a royalty because it's the queen who owns the subsurface mineral rights in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. The queen. Except for the queen is not evading taxes like those rocket ship billionaires are that I mentioned. Um, she legally is exempt from paying taxes. About 30 years ago, she decided she was going to pay them anyways as a sign of solidarity with the people. The queen has castles and whatnot, but they're hundreds of years old, but she does not live as lavishly as American president or the French president or the Russian president do. She's actually quite modest by comparison. I mean, compare her motorcade with Joe Biden's motorcade, but in fairness, he has many more nurses and doctors than she does, and she's about to turn 96. But let me show you the woman who truly has legal, constitutional, political, historical hierarchy over you and me as Canadian subjects to her. Let me show you how she lives. There she is at her own husband's funeral last year, wearing a mask, though there is no one near her and no one is near her. 
at her husband's funeral. Not her children, not her friends. That is not by her choice. That is because some cruel health bureaucrat said so. And the queen, who could literally, legally, constitutionally do whatever she pleases, including, I presume, fire those bureaucrats. I mean, the legal name of the British government is Her Majesty's government, uh, if you can believe it. She actually obeyed her servants, not like Bezos and Gates. The Queen of the United Kingdom and Great Britain and Northern Ireland, the Queen of Canada, the Queen of Australia, and a dozen other Commonwealth countries, that queen obeyed her foolish servants with her trademark dignity, even though she probably knew it was all bollocks, as they say over there. But she did it because for a woman of hierarchy, she strives to sympathize and care for the lowly as much as for the high. And I tell you this because look at what is happening across in the UK right now. Boris Johnson, while imposing harsh restrictions on the country, invited his own staff to a bring-your-own-booze party. <laughs> but of course he did, and of course it stayed secret for a year. Because do you doubt that the entire media class in the United Kingdom has been going to parties too, while scorching mere citizens for doing, you know, private gatherings of more than six people. What reporter could possibly criticize Boris Johnson for having a party when they themselves either went to that party or went to their own media party? Literally everyone in charge of implementing the lockdown in the UK broke the lockdown in the UK. Uh, one of my favorite or least favorite stories, I don't know, is Professor Neil Ferguson, the chief doomsayer and lockdown activist in the UK. He was caught having an affair, running all over the city, breaking his own lockdown rules to have an affair. He resigned, though the media still go to him for his wisdom and judgment. But the health minister at the time, Matt Hancock, criticized Ferguson, which is sort of bold because Hancock was also using the lockdown as an opportunity to have an affair with a lobbyist. They were both cheating on their own families, caught by a surveillance camera. I love that part of the story. So imagine how many people in the ruling class have been going to secret parties or breaking the rules or having affairs. Do they actually do any work over there between their parties and their affairs? I'm going to say most of the ruling class has broken the rules. Some of the stupider ones, like Matt Hancock, will condemn other rule breakers, hoping they themselves won't get caught. But really, if you're caught, what, uh, what does an additional charge of hypocrisy mean? But that's my theory for why a party where dozens or even hundreds of people knew about it, stayed secret for so long in a world of gossip because the entire political media establishment, the whole class, was in on it. Or if not in, in that particular party, they were in on another party so they couldn't criticize. Like this, an announcement today from Kate Josephs. As people know, I previously worked in the Cabinet Office COVID Task Force where I was Director General. Let me uh, cut to the chase. She threw herself a huge going away party, a boozy one, uh, when the government was in lockdown. Lockdown for the little people, that is, because hierarchy. I am truly sorry. She says, no, you're not, sister. I don't think you are. I think you're sorry you got caught. Yes, I'm sure of that. Um, but if you were actually sorry about what you did, you could have come clean over the past year in any number of ways. You didn't. You tried to get away with it. You're sorry you got caught, that's all. 
Do you really think she'll suffer at all? Hmm. Guess again, she's now the CEO of the city of Sheffield. Salary, 190,000 pounds. That's 325,000 Canadian dollars a year. She's in charge of enforcing the rules in Sheffield now. Do you think she has obeyed the rules in Sheffield? Do you really think she has? You think so? Here's what Pundit Piers Morgan said about all this. <laughs> he said, the worst thing about all these illicit Downing Street parties is they will make COVID skeptics and anti-lockdowners feel vindicated in their suspicions that the virus was never that dangerous. Or why would the people running the country all be ignoring the rules so brazenly? No, Pierce, that's not the worst thing about it. That's, that's the best thing about it. It shows that, obviously, no one in power is actually worried about COVID. Haven't been since very early days. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, nowhere in the free world that I know about was the curve not flattened. Simply didn't turn into the zombie apocalypse that the fearmonger said. Everything after those first two weeks was theater. We knew very early that masks didn't work, that the disease focused on seniors, and to be clear, fat seniors with underlying health problems. It's about the same level of terrifying as the annual flu. And the Omicron variant is actually less terrifying than the flu. You know that, right? You don't think that they know that? Like Al Gore and Leo DiCaprio on a yacht, they know it. Like Boris Johnson and the rest of them at their garden parties, they knew it. Like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, they, they know it. You, you know it too, but, but you also know your place. Your place is to obey the rules. Yours is not to reason why. That's left to the, to the special people, the important people. I think the Queen knew it was all BS too. I think as she was sitting there by herself at her husband's funeral, I think she knew it was BS. And I think she must literally be the only person at the top of the hierarchy who morally deserves to be at the top of the hierarchy. Stay with us for more. Well, one of the main differences between the Canadian Constitution and the American Constitution uh, when it comes to our civil liberties and our fundamental freedoms is that the very first section of Canada's Charter of Rights describes the way in which governments can infringe upon our liberties, assuming that they will. The first paragraph of our Charter says that there are limits that can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And only then, after that caveat, does it list the so-called fundamental freedoms, basically casting a pall on them. The American Constitution, by contrast, says that the freedoms are the, the center of the document and any infringements have a high burden to overleap. I think that's one reason why not a single substantial challenge to lockdown laws in Canada have succeeded over the last two years, including shocking cases where you'd think it would be a slam dunk, like the airport detention centers where healthy people were detained for three days with no cause, no warrant. The Federal Court of Canada said that wasn't even a detention, let alone one that had to be justified under Section 1. Just incredible. By contrast, our American friends love liberty just a little bit more. And yesterday, they saw the fruits of it, an important Supreme Court case striking down a national vaccine mandate 
Very big news joining us now from Washington, D.C. is our friend Janine Yunus, litigation counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. What a victory, Janine. I'm thrilled to hear it. Can you tell our viewers in Canada what happened in the United States yesterday in the fight for freedom? Yeah. Um, so the Supreme Court struck down the OSHA mandate. Uh, Biden had an, an, exec, an, an, sorry, an executive order that basically implemented four uh, different vaccine mandates. One is this one, the OSHA mandate, and that apply, applies to private companies of 100 or more employees. So just pause for um, one second. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Yeah. I, I, up here, I think yeah. folks won't know that OSHA, that's occupational uh, yes. safety and health, right? That's basically a federal rule that, that governs workplaces, right? Right. That's an agency. And so this uh, so it's an agency that covers governs workplace safety and enacts rules and regulations designed to, um, you know, make workplaces safe for employees. Oh, yeah. I apologize um, for this, interrupting, but keep giving it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this um, this was actually the biggest one. So this affected about 84 million Americans would be subject to this mandate. Um, and then the other three were federal employees had to get the vaccine, federal contractors and then healthcare workers. Um so the uh, OSHA one, because, you know, this was important because it was the biggest one. And basically what the court said was that OSHA was designed to address workplace hazards, not a disease that's sort of omnipresent in the world at this point. Um, so, you know, it's really about like getting access to a helmet if you're a construction worker or making sure that the office where you spend eight hours a day doesn't have asbestos. And one way in which the court drew a distinction was to say, well, you don't you can't get take your vaccine away at the end of the workday. You know, it's still there. Um, so this was a, a very important decision for uh, Liberty. I should be clear that this does not really create precedents for state mandates, which are usually based on uh, sort of the state's 10th Amendment police power. And this was really about executive overreach. So this doesn't mean that all vaccine mandates are going away in the United States. I saw a reference in the ruling uh, to a tweet made by uh, Joe Biden's chief of staff that this was a workaround that making an executive order to tackle 84 million people was a workaround Congress, a way of avoiding that. Obviously, that caught the judge's attention and it, and it said, yeah, we know what you're doing here. I think that's what you're getting at when it was more a technical win. Uh, what, what, were the, uh, what were the other reasons that the, the court ruled this way? And, and can you tell us what was, the, what was the division of the judges? Because quite often it's a very narrow decision. What was it uh, how many judges were for the mandates and how many votes to struck them down, struck them down? So it was only three were actually uh, for the mandates, the ones who are considered the liberal branch of the court. That's uh, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, uh, who also made some shocking misstatements of fact at argument a week ago. Um, for instance, uh, Justice Sotomayor said something like that there were uh, hundreds of thousands or 100,000 kids in critical condition from COVID, which is just absurd. Um, that's, that's not even close. Um, but as far as other aspects of the uh, decision that were important, well, the major questions doctrine played a large role. So that's um, that's a doctrine that says if Congress wanted something that's so big, you know, this is so big that this affects so many people, it's going to have massive economic implications. Congress would have spoken directly to that. So you can't just read this authority into the OSHA statute. And so again, this was like, a, this was an important um, case for limiting executive overreach, for limiting agencies' ability to just do whatever they want and run, run roughshod over people's liberties. Now, let me ask you a procedural question, because again, I'm, I'm just so jealous of the way your law works here, it's so slow. There's no way that this matter would go directly to our Supreme Court. You would first have to go to a local, like this, the lowest level court, 
most likely lose. Then maybe the next year you'd be in the court of appeal. And then maybe the year after you'd be in the in the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, basically, in fact, I don't think a single case in Canada has gone to the Supreme Court yet touching lockdownism. How did this get to your Supreme Court so quickly? Who were the plaintiffs or petitioners? Uh, was it states? Was it governments? Who had the standing to get in the front door of the Supreme Court? So this, the plaintiffs in this case were uh, employers. So it's a lot of businesses. So they were basically saying, we don't want to, you're, you're forcing us to implement this vaccine mandate. It's going to harm us economically because people will quit. We're going to have trouble replacing those people. Um, so that was the harm that was alleged. It wasn't really about a uh, personal harm because it wasn't so much people say, you know, it, was, it wasn't really about people not wanting to get the vaccine. As far as the procedural aspect and how this got there so quickly, well, this was a, a preliminary injunction um, or an appeal from a preliminary injunction. So that's a motion that you make when you uh, need immediate relief in court. And one of the things that you have to show you, so you have to show a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. So you basically have to make your case and then you have to show irreparable harm. Um, irreparable harm typically can't be monetary damages, although there's sort of an exception uh, when you're suing the U.S. government. But um, so courts have held around the country that it actually is irreparable harm to uh, be forced to get a vaccine because you can't undo that. And you might do that so that you don't lose your job, et cetera. Um, and so here the businesses were alleging the irreparable harm of, you know, basically being financially ruined. Uh, in fact, the, the court didn't really address that issue. So I think everybody sort of agreed on it, but when you are able to make that showing, then things can happen very fast. So typically this would start in the district court, which is the lowest federal court, and then go to the court of appeals, a circuit court of appeals, and then the Supreme court, if they agreed to hear it, um, it, there's a peculiar peculiarity of the OSHA statute that it actually just starts in the the Court of Appeals. So this case originated actually in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Hmm. So 84 million people have a reprieve. Uh, yes. And, and now you say that's just a, a quick injunction, which which I guess assumes that at a later date there might be a, a larger hearing. But I'm guessing that this is effectively dead. It, it, I mean, Joe Biden, is, is he going to try and pursue this and, and take it up with the same court a second time? That's a really good question. Yeah, typically injunctions, I mean, although technically they're not the end, you can, you know, continue with the underlying lawsuit. Um, typically the, the court has said what it thinks, you know, because they're saying substantial likelihood of success on the merits. They're saying, you know, yeah, they're, it's basically a ruling. Um, so in this case, there were six judges who voted to strike down the mandate. Um, I, I, I believe, sorry, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was two uh, had a so, no, that was the per curiam opinion. I'm sorry. So a couple of them thought that a uh, the rule was too broad, but you could have a similar rule if it was limited to workplaces where COVID spreads more quickly. That was actually the, the per curiam opinion, the main opinion. The ju justices who wrote a concurring opinion, I think, didn't agree with that. Mm. So, um, so Biden theoretically could come back with a narrower rule, say, and say like, oh, well, meat packing plants or a place like that where the virus spreads really readily, uh, they have to implement this. But I don't think that they will. And one reason I don't think that they will is uh, one of the problems the court seemed to have with this um, mandate was that it was done pursuant to its emergency, its ability to issue a regulation on an emergency basis. And they seem to doubt some of that, uh, like, so the public doesn't have the opportunity to notice and to, uh, you know, comment um, in these circumstances. And so I think they don't want to go through the regular procedure because 
then once people give notice and comment, I'm not sure that it would actually go through. So I'm guessing this is effectively dead to put it, uh, you know, to sum up. I understand that one of the uh, Supreme Court justices, one of Trump's appointments, um, Amy Coney Barrett, asked that question. How long is an emergency? When is it over? If I'm if I'm uh, recalling the headlines correctly, I think that's a good question that that can yeah. apply to so many parts of the lockdown. So many things have been excused or justified because it's an emergency. Well, we're now coming up. It'll soon be the third year of the emergency. It's like what Castro says, the per yes. perpetual revolution. It ain't a revolution anymore. It ain't an emergency anymore. And everything from the emergency use authorization for the vaccines for the to other draconian powers that are not normally in even in Canada, let alone America. I think that that's a good question. How long is this emergency going to go on for? Well, at this point, it looks like it can go on forever. I mean, it doesn't seem that the you know use of the term emergency or exercising emergency powers has to do anything with the facts on the ground. I mean, there's no emergency. And, uh, you know, where I live in D.C. now, the mayor just announced a vaccine passport program. You have to show your vaccine card to go into a restaurant. This uh, technically is starting tomorrow, actually. But uh, some of the restaurants are already doing it. Um, and it's just I mean this is sort of upending life as we know it. This, these are all done under their emergency powers. And uh, it's it's unbelievable. Well, maybe your Supreme Court um, or other courts will, will have a ruling on that fundamental question of what is an emergency and is it really, is it really one? Let me, uh, you've been very generous with your time and I'm learning a lot. Um, you talked about the ruling for the occupational safety and health um, aspect, but you said there were other factors. There were healthcare workers, that was one uh, mandate, and there were contractors, I guess that means any company of a certain size doing business with the federal government. Were those ruled on as well, and how did they go? So the healthcare workers mandate was also ruled on uh, yesterday, and there it went the opposite way. Um, Roberts joined uh, the the dissenters in the other case. Um, so that, and the judge, basically what it was, was the judges just, it was sort of a workplace specific thing. If you're working around the most vulnerable people in hospitals, et cetera, you have to be vaccinated. Um, I still don't agree that this makes sense, particularly when you were, um, you know, the, they don't make an exemption for people with natural immunity, which is a large portion of healthcare workers since they were on the front lines during COVID. Uh, but, you know, it, this affects a much smaller number of people. So I suppose if I, you know, had to choose the OSHA mandate, it's more important. Uh, as for the others, there's the federal contractor mandate, which I think affects about 20 million Americans. Um, and that one uh, has been stayed nationwide by a district court in Georgia. So it's actually not technically in effect. I anticipate that it probably won't go to the Supreme Court because that legal basis for enacting that uh, mandate is even more tenuous. So I'm guessing the government's not going to keep pushing it because they're going to be worried about creating bad law. Hmm. And then we have uh, uh, the federal employees. So people who are actually employees of the federal government, we, our office has a lawsuit uh, get challenging that right now. And um, there's uh, actually been sort of, there's a new development there because uh, we hadn't been able to move for a preliminary injunction recently because the federal government said they weren't going to start disciplining people till after the new year. But we, some of our plaintiffs just got letters uh, threatening them with, you know, discipline and termination if they don't get the vaccine. So we may be seeking some sort of emergency relief in that case. Hmm. I, I want to shift gears. And I know this isn't uh, your turf. Uh, I mean, you've been very focused on American litigation. That's your job. But probably out of the corner of your eye, you've been following the case of 
uh, one of the world's great tennis players, uh, Novak Djokovic from Serbia, who yeah. applied uh, for an exemption to get a visa and to play in the Australian Open. And he filled yeah. out all the paperwork and there were panels that reviewed it. And, and he got the exemption because he had COVID. In fact, it, it was very public that he had it. And he recovered from it and he had natural immunity and the state of Victoria, Australia approved it all. But there was a bit of a media kerfuffle. So when they when he landed, they revoked that and detained him. But he he yeah. went to court and, and had any anyway, going back and forth. Um, it's very it's it's riveting, but it shows that in many jurisdictions, natural immunity is a thing. I know in the United yeah. Kingdom. Uh, in in many instances, uh, even in Israel, if you can show natural immunity, you're exempt from these forced jabs. What's the state of natural immunity litigation and legislation in America? Well, uh, so far, there has been uh, not much recognition of natural immunity. Uh, I don't quite understand what's going on there. And in fact, all of our cases so far have been brought on behalf of people who have natural immunity. It sort of seems like the most logical people that you should grant uh, vaccine exemptions to. But the courts have been willing to defer basically to the agencies, the CDC and the FDA, uh, who have been saying, if you're na naturally immune, you should still get the vaccine. It provides additional protection, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's very frustrating. There's, you know, it, it's just very illogical. In fact, uh, I, I tweeted something about this the other day. We have a client in, uh, who's a doctor in Rhode Island who has natural immunity and who has had his medical license suspended or revoked because uh, he didn't want to get the vaccine. And he, he also had a history of Bell's palsy, so he's worried about getting the vaccine. Um, what's ironic is because Rhode Island is facing a shortage of healthcare workers, they're actually allowing people who have active COVID infections to treat patients so long as they wear a mask. But our naturally immune client, who also wears a mask when he practices, can't treat patients. <laughs> It's, it's completely I, insane. I it's unbelievable. They've taken away his right to practice medicine. That's happening in Canada yeah. as well. In fact, doctors who grant exemptions to patients are being investigated and suspended yeah. in Canada too. I, I, I mean, it couldn't be more on point with the Nuremberg Code and the lessons that were supposedly learned in the 40s from the, the Nazi doctors. I, I got a question for you. I want to end on a positive note. I started by complaining that here in Canada, we have not had a single substantive win in court. Mm -hmm. uh, individual cases, quite often the authorities or the institutions bend the knee and quietly make an exception because they don't want to have a full-blown trial. They don't want to set a precedent. So there have been individual cases that have been settled. It's true. But there has been no resounding ruling like the one that happened yesterday in the OSHA case. Um, I know things are still bad there, but I feel like what happened at the Supreme Court, especially this, I think you said it was six to nine. I think that's a signal uh, that the pendulum in the establishment itself is swinging back. I, I, I heard that comment by Justice Sotomayor that there's 100,000 children in hospital. Completely factually false. First time I've ever seen a Democrat fact checked by an official fact checker. But to me, that shows that you know, people in their 60s and 70s who are in official circles and sort of cloistered from the world, they're probably the most afraid of COVID of anyone in society because they're old themselves. Yeah. Maybe they're fat. Maybe they have an underlying health condition. They're part of the establishment. They, they're part of the inside club. Um, they're naturally compliant rule enforcers. Like, I think there's no one 
in the world who would be more sympathetic to upholding a mandate than a 70-year-old Supreme Court judge. Uh, I mean, just yeah. everything about their life uh, would say, yeah, let's be careful, abundance of caution. So if even six out of nine Supremes say, nah, this has gone too far, to me that's a sign that the whole of society, including important parts of the establishment, have realized there was an overreach. Are you encouraged? Do you feel some hope? Do you think that maybe you're past the watershed, that it's going to get better now? Or do you still think it's going to be tough going? I think it's going to be tough going in uh, blue jurisdictions, Democrat, Democratic strongholds. I'm actually really not very uh, hopeful. I mean, the uh, this just goes on and on. This uh, so New York was the first to implement a vaccine passport program, basically where you have to show ID, uh, sorry, vaccine card and ID to get into um, any, anything indoors, theater, restaurant, gym. Um, it was a complete failure, <laughs> complete in every way. It's it's been economically harmful. It's harmed the people of New York. Tourists don't want to go there. And instead of um, learning a lesson from that, all of these other cities, Boston, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, now D.C. are doing the same thing. So I. I think what's happening is that there's just more and more of a divide and it's uh it's sort of hardening people's positions so in a, you know so the federal um sorry this decision that affects the federal mandate is is good uh, especially for people who live in red states but i don't it's not really helping with the for the you know with the daily lives of people who live in blue jurisdictions i really think your best bet if you want to be free is to move to texas or florida or something like that yeah well we all saw the uh uh, data of states people are leaving and states people are moving to, and it really tracks this COVID lockdown legislation. Same thing yeah. in Australia, by the way, that state of Victoria has had a net out migration of people. I have one last question. I, I know I've kept you longer than, than we said we would. Um, uh -huh. I have a, I, I notice that the high priests and priestesses of the COVID lockdownists have started to make concessions that, you know, a few months ago would have got you banned from Facebook or Twitter for saying. Uh, even Albert Bourla, the head of Pfizer, said the first two jabs don't really protect you from Omicron. Uh, you see the CDC and the FDA changing their thoughts on everything from masks that have been cultishly followed for over a year and quarantines. Like, I, I feel like and even their narrative, well, we have to live with COVID. We have to get used to it as endemic. I sense that they feel a reckoning is coming at the ballot box in the midterms. And I sense that that may sober them up. So you're pessimistic about the blue jurisdictions. But I think that the fact that some of the keepers of the narrative are saying, hey, maybe let's just pump the brakes a bit. That tells me they think that a reckoning's coming. That's me in Canada. I don't know American politics. And I know that's, I mean, you're a lawyer, not a politician. But do you think that's a factor? Do you think that even in blue states, people are just going to say, I'm sick of schools being banned. I'm sick of masks. I'm sick of vax passports. I'm just sick of this whole thing. Democrats out. Yeah. Uh, to, so to an extent, I do think that's happening. And I obviously, you know, as a former Democrat, I hear from people every day who, you know, are changing 
their minds uh, as this goes on and on and on. And in New York City, for instance, they're actually trying to mandate N95s for children now, (laughs) which healthcare workers say are, you know, suffocating, impossible to tolerate for long periods of time. And we're putting them on little kids who face no risk of this disease um, with, you know, readily available vaccines for those who want them, you know, that increase the chance of severe symptoms of COVID or sorry, decrease the chance of severe symptoms of COVID. Um, It's just, it's insanity. So I, I do. Yeah. I do think that there may be some changes at the ballot box. The problem is I think a lot of these politicians, um, like mayor Bowser in DC knows she's going to get reelected. She doesn't have to worry about it. The, the mayor in New York, you know, if they, if they're not about to be held democratically accountable, then they're just, uh, basically behaving like tyrants. Yeah. Well, it's so good to catch up with you. I follow you on Twitter. I'm a fan of your organization. I love the name of it, the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Janine, you and the rest of your team and other great litigators around America who have taken the place left by groups like the ACLU once upon a time, they would have fought against this tyranny. And I'm just so glad you're doing it. And uh, hopefully we'll have some wins up in Canada one day soon. We sure could use them. Great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. There you have it, Janine Eunice. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your viewer feedback on Stephen Gilbo. Uh, M. Larson 69 says, Reshape? You mean destroy it worse than it already is. What does an eco-terrorist know about the economy? other than what his puppet masters tell him to do. Well, you know what, I, I think that a lot of Marxists, a lot of communists just believe in burning things down. Um, they haven't really thought through the hard part. I, I think it's like any Marxist approach to things like art or architecture. I once heard something that really stuck with me, that everyone is a conservative about the things they know. So let's say you're a craftsman. Let's say you're a mason, a bricklayer. You know about laying bricks. Well, how is that a conservative thing? Well, you know what works and you don't because you're a craftsman and you've been doing it for, you know, it's a trade, but it's, it's also in a way an art. And how do you put the mortar in? And how do you do this? And how do you do that? And let's say you've been doing it for 20 years. You know what works and you know what doesn't. And you know what you were like when you were a junior and the mistakes a beginner could make. And that's why there's an apprenticeship program. But let's say someone comes in and says, nah, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it a different way, but you, you haven't mastered the craft yet. So you know what you don't like, but you have no clue about how to, you know what you want to tear down, but you have no clue about how you want to build it. People are conservative about the things they know the most about because they know about them. And I think that the radicals, the, the communists, as I said, in Trudeau's cabinet have one thing in common. They've never actually done something. Catherine McKenna, luckily, no longer in cabinet. She never did anything. She was just part of a jet set, you know, photo op, go to conferences elite. Stephen Gilbo, his whole life was an activist. Has he ever done anything? Can you name for me anyone in a significant position in cabinet who was actually a serious builder, entrepreneur, leader, someone who actually knows something about something? Trudeau himself flitted around, you know, he was a ski bum and he taught for a few months here and there. No one there actually knows anything about anything other than they want to tear it down. Someone that named the world went crazy 2021 says, I think it is quite despicable 
what Ronald McDonald House is doing, that baby needs, that helps, so does their family. So tired and disappointed in this world, can't believe all the things that are going on. Nothing's being done about it. They need to leave these poor people alone and let them stay there with their baby while he gets his treatment. I think everybody needs to boycott McDonald's. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, Ronald McDonald House is a worthy charity. They've just made a disastrously wrong decision. I'm not sure if cutting them off is the right thing. I think they need an attitude readjustment. I don't know who, how that would come about. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's that. we see that in the Salvation Army as well. We see that even in nurses, doctors, paramedics, literally firing life-saving people because they didn't get a jab. And as we talked to Janine today, why are you firing people of natural immunity that's in many cases as strong, if not stronger, than vaccine immunity? Roddy998 says, I won't be contributing to the Ronald McDonald House Canada again. This is sad and despicable. Well, I can understand you feel that way. I mean, they're literally punishing this family. Well, that's our show for today. Until next week, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with an interview that our Alexa Lavoie did with Maxime Bernier in Quebec. Good night. Donc, ici Alexandre Lavoie pour Rebel News, je me trouve en ce moment à la place Jacques-Cartier, ici à Montréal. Il y a une grande manifestation va commencer contre les mesures sanitaires. Et aidez-nous à pouvoir avancer et à démontrer ce qui se passe ici à Québec. 
personnellement, je suis ici parce que je suis aucunement d'accord avec ce qui se passe en ce moment. Euh, ça fait assez longtemps que ça dure. Je trouve que c'est une mascarade. Je ne suis pas du tout d'accord avec les, les choses qu'on nous impose. Aujourd'hui, vous voyez plusieurs gens qui se sont réunis malgré le froid à Montréal pour dire non à ces mesures-là. Oui, liberticide. Et surtout, la division et la ségrégation qu'on fait dans notre société actuellement. Avec toutes les mesures qui sont en train d'imposer euh, aux non-vaccinés, est-ce que vous avez pensé quitter cette province? Oui, plusieurs fois. Ouais. Euh, moi, j'ai fait les deux premiers vaccins. Je ne voulais pas les faire. Au final, je les ai faits. Euh, ma famille n'est pas vaccinée. Euh, malheureusement, on veut, on veut quitter le pays, mais euh, ma, ma mère et ma soeur ne sont pas vaccinés, donc ils ne peuvent même pas prendre l'avion pour quitter. Si c'était possible et très facile de quitter la province, je l'aurais fait. Ça fait longtemps. Ben, on ne peut pas bouger, anyway. Ça va être difficile de changer de province si on n'est pas vacciné. Mais oui, c'est dans nos pensées euh, éventuelles. Je suis en mesure de faire des déplacements vers les États-Unis avec ma famille. Ouais. J'y ai pensé et j'y pense encore. Ouais. Oh, ouais. Quelle province iriez-vous? Ah, oh, ben là, en Floride. <rire> Ontario. Probablement plus vers l'ouest, l'Alberta ou la Colombie-Britannique. C'est pas encore décidé, mais le sud de Costa Rica. Vous avez un premier ministre au Canada et un premier ministre au Québec qui divise la population et fait en sorte de dire aux gens qui ne sont pas vaccinés qu'ils sont des mauvais citoyens. Pour nous, il n'y a pas de mauvais ou de bons citoyens. Est-ce que vous pensez que si on est en mesure sanitaire en ce moment, c'est la faute des non-vaccinés? Ah oui, absolument. Dans mon opinion, oui. Non, je pense pas ça. Pas du tout. J'ai l'impression que soit le gouvernement ne sait pas quoi faire et cherche à qui mettre la, la faute, soit elle juste nous montre hey, « Écoute, moi, je fais quelque chose, je vous impose les mesures. » Mais je n'aime pas les rhétoriques qui me fait sous-entendre votre question. Je n'aime pas la division de la population en deux. Non, non, je ne crois pas que c'est à cause des non-vaccinés. Non, je crois que c'est à cause du gouvernement, parce qu'il n'y a pas assez de, de travailleurs dans les secteurs. C'est pour cela, ce n'est pas pour la santé. Non. Et vous ben, Moi, je ne suis pas aussi catégorique. Euh, je ne pense pas que c'est à 100% à cause des vaccinés, mais je pense, je pense aussi que ce n'est pas une raison pour ne pas se faire vacciner. Si ça aide même une personne à ne pas mourir, moi, je suis prête à le faire. Je suis vaccinée, et je vais faire ma troisième dose. Aussi. Non, je pense pas que ça à cause des non-vaccinés. Je pense que chacun a le choix de, de se vacciner ou pas. Puis je pense que tant qu'on tant qu qu prend des mesures sanitaires euh, adéquates, euh, je pense que vacciner ou pas, ça revient un peu au même. Avec euh, la mesure de la SAQ et de la SQDC, est-ce que euh, ces deux mesures-là vont affecter votre mode de vie? Oui. Pas directement, mais plus dans le sens que le go y a annoncé qu'il va y avoir des mesures encore plus pires qui s'en viennent. C'est déjà planifié. Puis il dit que c'est des mesures qui vont être très dérangeantes. Fait qu'on sait qu'ils s'en vont vers les épiceries et les trucs de même. C'est pas difficile d'acheter de l'alcool euh, ou acheter de la drogue sur le marché noir. Là. Fait que ça sera pas un problème. Mais anyway, ça, 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 ça me concerne plus ou moins. C'est pas ça mon, ma bataille. Du tout. 
consomme pas. C'est vraiment juste pour euh, pousser les gens à continuer à faire, à faire ce vaccin, contrôler les gens encore plus. Donc, je trouve que c'est immoral. Bah un peu, ouais, mais on sait faire autrement. Moi, j'ai pas besoin du tout euh, d'aller euh, à la SAC ou à la SQDC. Hein. Mm -hmm. S'il y a la SAC et la SQDC qui est ouverte, c'est bien. Si c'est pas ouvert, pour moi, euh, c'est pas pareil, complètement pareil. Pensez-vous que euh, les non-vaccinés devraient rester euh, en cabanée chez eux avec seulement possibilité de livraison? Pas du tout. Non, pas du tout. Absolument. Je sais pas. Je sais pas, honnêtement. C'est un peu excessif parce que si on met des masques, même si on n'est pas vacciné, on est quand même... Euh, c'est pas... Euh, on n'est pas nécessairement dangereux pour les autres. Euh, si on ne met pas les autres en danger, si on suit les consignes, je pense que c'est un peu excessif de, de garder les gens chez eux. Pensez-vous que le système de santé ne devrait pas être autorisé aux non-vaccinés? Ouais, personnellement, ouais. Si tu veux pas le vaccin, je pense pas que tu, tu devrais aller aux hôpitaux. C'est un logique ou l'autre, on peut pas faire les deux. C'est pas la vaccination qui va nous sortir de la crise, c'est l'immunité collective qui va nous sortir de cette crise-là. Et, et on voit qu'on approche à la vraie immunité collective maintenant. C'est pas en brimant des droits des gens qu'on va réussir à, à mater la pandémie. Que pensez-vous des chroniqueurs de tous les journaux qui font euh, des articles haineux sur les non-vaccinés? Ils vont payer le bill. C'est de la propagande. C'est de, de la propagande pure et simple. Euh, franchement, moi, je, je, c'est arrivé à un stade où je je peux même plus aller sur la presse ou sur n'importe quel site parce que ça, ça me met hors de moi. Ça n'a pas sa place. Euh, euh, Ils nous traitent comme euh, des, des déchets. Puis on est des humains à même titre que n'importe quel humain. C'est de la discrimination euh, au cut-off. C'est de la psychose. C'est une psychose. C'est pareil comme les des années 1930, les gens perdent la tête. Il y a autant de non-vaccinés qui sont malades, sinon plus. Euh, tout le monde qui est non-vacciné le voit. C'est de la psychose. C'est une psychose collective. Ben, C'est une honte parce qu'on euh, est des, des citoyens comme les autres. Euh, on paye euh, nos taxes, on travaille, on, est, euh, on provide pour la société comme tout le monde. Et euh, ouais, c'est une honte parce que euh, voilà, c'est une honte. Je ne pense pas que ça va nécessairement servir à grand-chose. Je ne pense pas que si on est haineux contre quelqu'un, ça va les encourager à se faire vacciner justement. Donc, ce n'est pas nécessairement euh, très euh, utile. Et, et ça met les gens encore plus dans un, dans un état négatif qu'ils sont probablement déjà. Donc. Le groupe des non-vaccinés, pour eux, c'est un bouc émissaire. Mais les vrais responsables de tout ça, le bouc émissaire, c'est les politiciens actuellement, l'élite des politiciens qui, pendant 20 ans, n'ont rien fait pour changer et modifier le système de santé au Québec et au Canada, qui est un système socialiste qui ne fonctionne pas. C'est pas à cause des non-vaccinés. Pensez-vous vraiment que le vaccin fonctionne? Oui, je pense que oui. Ouais. Moi, je suis pour le vaccin. Et euh, pensez-vous que la troisième dose est la porte de sortie pour euh, sortir de tout ça? La troisième dose... Ben, je fais confiance aux, aux scientifiques. Je pense que oui. Oui. Ouais. Et euh, puisque euh, on sait que dans le monde entier, la couverture vaccinale est très minimale, on sait que ça va créer quand même d'autres variants et on sait que l'Omicron euh, infecte autant les non-vaccinés que les vaccinés. Est-ce que vous êtes toujours du même avis que la troisième dose est la porte de sortie? Selon moi, oui. Ouais. Oui. Si on veut vacciner notre peuple, puis si on veut que c'est obligatoire, 
ça fait aucun sens qu'on qu ne veut pas partager nos vaccins. Parce que c'est vraiment une culture que les, les gros pays du monde développé ne veulent pas partager les vaccins avec les autres gens du monde qui sont moins développés et moins de ressources. Donc, si on veut obliger les gens de ce pays à le faire, puis on ne partage pas, ça sert à aucun point. Parce qu'on va pas avoir, on va avoir un nouvel variant dans une, un couple d'années, un année ici. Et combien d'autres vous êtes prêts à prendre? Moi, je serais, je serais prête à prendre la troisième dose, mais après, je pense pas que j'irai plus loin. Et là, on veut faire de la ségrégation et on commence à mettre dans la tête des gens que ça serait normal d'empêcher un Québécois de se faire soigner à l'hôpital parce qu'il a décidé de ne pas être vacciné. Lorsqu'on commence un discours comme ça, il n'y a pas de limite. Est-ce qu'on va dire que quelqu'un qui est obèse et qui est diabétique ne devrait pas avoir de soins de santé parce qu'il ne prend pas soin de sa santé ou qu'il ne fait pas attention? Non, il faut respecter les choix de chacun et tout le monde est payé de par leurs impôts et tout le monde devrait avoir le droit de profiter de ces soins de santé-là s'ils en ont besoin. terminé euh, juste ici à chaque euh, place Jacques-Cartier. Euh, on a interrogé les deux côtés de l'histoire. Ça fait intéressant de savoir euh, leurs opinions à ce sujet. Euh, J'espère que vous avez aimé ce reportage. Et euh, si vous voulez, euh, continuez à nous suivre. Plein d'autres sont à suivre. Donc, comme vous savez, Rebel News est le seul média qui couvre sur le terrain ce qui se passe en ce moment, le seul qui démontre l'autre côté de l'histoire. Et comme vous le savez, c'est grâce à vous qu'on on peut avancer. Euh, S'il vous plaît, allez sur lockdownreport.com, faites un don et aidez-nous à pouvoir avancer et à démontrer ce qui se passe ici à Québec.